Welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention. Each month I chat with a distinguished researcher or practitioner and together we explore the narrative of their injury prevention careers. Today we'll be listening to a conversation with Morag Mackay, Research Director Safe Kids Worldwide. Morag manages the research and evaluation activities of Safe Kids and ensures data and evidence-informed good practices are integrated into all aspects of their work. Morag's had 25 years experience in child injury prevention and control, and her contributions have been in specifically areas of injury surveillance, research, education, policy, program planning, and evaluation. Hello, Morag. Hello, Rod. So you're in Washington at the moment, I think, is that right? Yes, that's right. Washington, D.C., working for Safe Kids Worldwide. And how did you end up there? Uh, Well, that one is actually a little bit serendipitous. The work I was doing in Europe with the European Child Safety Alliance ended with the ending of some funding. And I happened to be doing some consulting um, with Safe Kids Worldwide on who to talk to in Europe about a particular topic and sort of told them, call me back in, they said they would call me back in two weeks. And I said, I won't be here. And they said, where are you going? I explained that the funding was over and I was looking for work. And they said, can we call you back in 30 minutes? So uh, interviewed for the director of research position. And I've been here in Washington for about five years now. I'm not going to ask you, how did you get to Europe? (laughs) Uh, uh, I started uh, my career in injury prevention in Canada. um, And one of the things that um, I really was interested in doing in Canada was um, engaging um, federal leadership more in what was happening around injury prevention. And um, we had a really interesting consultation with folks from across Canada one year when I was at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario running a child and youth injury prevention unit there. And the federal bureaucrats came in and said, well, you know, we're not really going to invest in this issue because we don't want to put a whole lot of money into it um, when we're not sure that, you know, the capacity is there to to actually see change happen. So essentially what they were saying was, you need to build table legs in order for us to give you a tabletop. And so that led to the development of the Canadian Collaborative Centers for Injury Prevention and Control, which was a network of units from across the country um, in each of the provinces. Um, And we were looking for how we collaborated and made better use of limited resources, how we built capacity. And we developed the Canadian curriculum from that. So a bunch of work there. And I happened to have a colleague that ended up moving to Europe and she got some funding from the European Commission to start a large scale multi-country Uh, project that was looking at encouraging uptake of existing evidence around child injury prevention. And she asked me if I wanted to live in Europe for a year or two. And I said, sure, an adventure like that sounded great. The project was amazing. And I went for one or two years and stayed for 11. So let's draw a couple of um, threads through this. You've talked a lot about collaboration, uh, capacity, um, building teams and using evidence when you were in Canada. Uh, How did that relate to the work that you were doing in in Europe? The 
European Commission was really interested in um, seeing some activity occur um, around um, application of existing evidence. And so we started looking at um, what the evidence was and how we might begin to look at a process to encourage uptake of that evidence. And you know, the more we looked at it, um, the more we realized that in addition to that evidence, there was the need for leadership. Um, you needed to have infrastructure in place, you know, whether that was, um, in many cases, we were talking about availability of data to help um, describe the injury issue, sort of just going through that public health process of describing the issue, identifying the risks, um, and then at the other end, helping you evaluate any interventions that you came up with, but also sort of the capacity to do that. And one of the things that I'd seen really early on when I was still in Canada was just the lack of preparation. And so, you know, everybody seems to fall into injury prevention. I'm, I, I've met a few people that chose to do injury prevention, but earlier on my, in my career, for sure, it was a lot of people that just sort of fell into it. Um, for whatever reason, the issue sparked something in them and they stayed with it. Um, but very often, few of us had any actual preparation in injury prevention. So we were often learning the science of injury prevention on the job. So I've got two questions I'd like to ask and they sort of in different territories. So choose the answer that, or the question you want to answer first. But the uh, first question is probably, too big is what do you need to do to prepare yourself to be in the field of injury prevention? But this, the second one is, what are the challenges that you identified in Canada that you recognised when you got to Europe as being there as well? So what are the overarching challenges of injury prevention? And what do you do to prepare yourself for that in the learning phase? So challenges are one of the biggest ones the field continues to face is sort of lack of recognition of the issue. Um, I remember attending a, a talk that Dr. Barry Pless gave very early on in my career. It was, it was actually before I even started working in injury where he equated injury to a childhood disease and talked through the entire talk as, as, as though he was addressing an infectious disease and, and then in the end spoke about child injury and the point that he was making was that if there was a, an infectious disease that was killing as many children in Canada as injury was, there would be, you know, the public uproar about it would be incredible. But because of the way we perceive injuries um, in our culture, we sort of see it as part of growing up. Um, an inevitable, some people say fate, whatever, that because people don't necessarily recognize, recognize the preventability upfront and because when you say unintentional injury, the majority of the public have very little idea of what you're talking about. But if you start talking about preventing fires or burns or drownings or preventing motor vehicle crashes, then they start to understand what you're talking about and they can start to see that there are things that would mitigate the, the situation and, and lead to a reduction in injury. Um, but because of that lack of recognition, you know, it follows that there isn't always that much funding. So we constantly were challenged um, in terms of finding funding, not only to do actual interventions, but even the research piece to identify what the um, 
the best approaches were. Uh, thankfully, I think in some ways it's it's a small field, and so um, globally you get ideas from elsewhere. And 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 I think one of the things we're constantly doing is looking at other countries for um, you know what they've done and what's worked. Um, but certainly that sort of lack of recognition of the issue is one of the challenges. Um, secondly, and probably following from that, um, in most of the graduate programs in public health epidemiology at that time, um, there was not even necessarily a course on injury prevention. Um, it might be covered off um, in, in professional programs such as nursing in terms of education that you might do with a patient or, you know, from a, a pediatrician's perspective, if they were doing um, a rotation in the emergency department and, you know, doing trauma, that one of the things that might come up is, okay, well, there's all this trauma, how do we prevent it? But again, you know, sort of just that real lack of, of, of a focus. Um, and so, as I said, you get into um, a career path, whether it's at a public health unit or, or, or at a university, and you start to address the, you know, these issues, and um, you end up saying, well, I, I don't know enough about this, so where else can I go and find out more about this? And I actually, my, my re first real introduction to, um, to injury was um, stepping into a new position um, as a surveillance coordinator and into a, a strategic planning process that was taking place in the province of Alberta at the time up in Canada, where they were um, certainly ahead of other parts of the country at that time in terms of recognizing that they really needed to take a bit more of a strategic approach to the issue um, if they wanted to really start to have an impact um, and, and be reducing injuries. So I think it's, it's lack of funding, um, lack of recognition of the issue, um, and then political will comes into it, um, and investment in that infrastructure and capacity building that help you build the workforce that can actually be knowledgeable enough to help you with the issue. So, you know, in, in answer to your question about moving over to Europe when we got there, um, the World Health Organization was working really hard to identify even a, you know, an individual within a given uh, government department who would act as sort of the point person within that government from a violence and injury prevention perspective. And, you know, they struggled there even. So if the issue is not even at all on sort of the government's agenda, then chances of seeing uh, coordinated concerted work towards addressing an issue is much more challenging. And so at the time that I was working in Europe, there, there was movement. Um, the time, while I was there, the World Report on Child Injury Prevention was published. The World Health Assembly uh, passed a resolution on child injury prevention. And there was a call for countries to develop national action plans. So the project I was involved in was really trying to facilitate um, partners in, well, by the end, I think we had 26 countries in Europe and in terms of trying to um, facilitate them in developing plans, which in many cases, um, the, the partner we were working with was starting from the ground up, trying to build a multi-sectoral uh, network to get people to realize that and here's where one of the other challenges comes is that although it's often the health 
sector that is dealing with the result of injury, um, the solutions lie for the most part outside of health. And therefore you've got to talk to departments of education, to departments of transportation. I'm going to jump in there on, on that point because it opens up, I think, a, quite a deep question of what is injury prevention. Um, you're illustrating through some of your answers there, uh, almost the reverse of the way academic injury prevention practitioners think. By and large, I suspect universities think of generating knowledge and translating it. They think of doing research and translating it. So the conversation is around the research to practice block and sometimes the, the course to, to practice the, the uh, direction. Whereas you've almost got a practice to research and a practice to knowledge um, way that you're talking about how you've developed your career, very much from the end result. Could you give me a sense of what you understand to be injury prevention? Well, I, you know what? I think I really still, I look at injury prevention still using that public health lens. That's what my, um, my graduate training is in public health. But I feel that perhaps because of where I've worked, um, not necessarily in that highly academic setting from the beginning, I've often been in settings where we're trying to bridge from research to practice that uh, the people who probably know the context best and probably have the best idea of what's going to work are the ones out practicing. Um, and, you know, I think you, if you look at the literature, we don't tend to publish articles when, when the intervention doesn't work um, or rarely, it does happen, but rarely. Um, luckily, uh, we have found funding and we, we do have a number of strategies that we know will work. I think um, while there are still gaps in our evidence in terms of what will work, I think really the challenge now is how do we get what we know works into practice? So often those studies that have demonstrated effectiveness are on a small scale. So we're starting to, we're at the point of where we're talking about how do you get people to transfer what's been learned in that research into their own setting, apply it and, and, and see things happen. But in order to do that and to think about that um, at, at a higher level, I think if you think about scoping it up, then that's where you do require coordination, you do require investment, um, there needs to be leadership um, and you need to have um, investment in, in data systems to allow you both, as I said, to define the issues locally and within that context and then evaluate them within that context. And that also takes capacity. Um, the fact that we have such amazing inequity, um, not just between countries when you start to look at injuries and certainly, you know, when we've seen some of the work in road safety over the last decade or two, trying to encourage more of the leaders to begin to invest in road safety, you start to see how the rates of injuries are so different between countries um, and exposures to different hazards are so different between countries. But then even within countries, um, we have a lot of examples um, from child injury where, uh, where a child lives within a given country can completely impact 
their risk of injury. And I think if we start to look at safety as a basic human right, um, and when I say safety, I'm not just talking about intentional injury, which is often where people's heads go when they think about a human rights approach to safety. But when you think about it, it shouldn't really matter where a child is born, they should have basic, um, there should be basic measures in place to reduce hazards in their environment, to increase the likelihood that they can grow up um, at least free of severe injury or death, even if we can't prevent all injuries. One of the other interesting things that we've seen um, in, in some recent efforts is sometimes injury prevention is, is a byproduct of, um, of another initiative that really had no intention of reducing injuries at all, um, which you know, I think starts to get into that whole idea of what the determinants of health are, and if you include being safe as part of being healthy. Um, but but we have you know examples where uh, try to give you one. Uh, well, certainly um, examples where they have taken a neighborhood and um, increased the lighting in the neighborhood. Um, from the perspective of potentially making it safer from an intentional injury perspective. And what they find is that as a result of that now increased lighting, they've got kids out playing much more, um, you know, in a safe area off the street. And suddenly you have a reduction uh, potentially in, in pedestrian injuries. Um, and so I think sometimes if we can stop and think about how injury fits in. And again, because I feel like we've, we've been banging on the door of, you know, help us fund us to do injury prevention for years with some success, but certainly not great success. Um, if there are other ways that we can integrate injury prevention into um, other areas of society and societal investment, um, where we can make progress forward with injuries at the same time as we're also making progress with other areas, then, then there's benefit in that as well. And, and that was the other point I was trying to make um, in the human rights approach paper that I spoke to was that if we look, for example, at the issue of drowning, and if we are in lower middle income countries where the water source is open water and people are going and filling up um, containers of water from an open uh, source and you come in from a health perspective and say, well, um, it would be much healthier if we had um, piped this over and it was separated from the sewage system or whatever those decisions that are made in closing that water system, you automatically reduce a child's exposure to open water and therefore may reduce drownings. And so I think that um, there are ways that we can integrate injury in with other issues that are receiving um, attention, that are receiving funding, and look for win-wins um, that will ultimately um, also benefit, in this case, the population I'm most interested in, of course, our kids. So thank you very much for those insights. They've been critical. My pleasure. We have been listening to Morag Mackay, Research Director, Safe Kids Worldwide located in Washington. 
For anyone wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've covered, I would encourage you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.vmj.com. You'll be able to listen to Injury Prevention podcasts on the first Thursday of every month, available on your usual podcast platform or app.